What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to the Industrial Marketing Show, the number one podcast for marketers in the manufacturing space. I am one of your hosts, Matthew Shinella. And I am MJ Peters. All right, MJ, I think today we have on um, someone in the industrial space who has maybe one of the biggest LinkedIn followings that we've had of anyone, and that is Tony Gunn, who is um, recently appointed General Manager of MTD CNC Global. Tony, what's going on, man? Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you so much for having me. And uh, what's going on is it's constant growth and excitement and, uh, you know, real, real joy for this whole marketing idea and campaign and company that I started with at uh, MTD CNC Global. So thank you so much for having me. I can't wait to discuss a lot of this with you. That's awesome. Yeah. So I want to bring Tony on. Um, you know, Tony's got such a big following on LinkedIn. I think a lot of people in the industrial space follow him. He's had a really interesting journey. Um, if you like read some of the stuff in his bio, um, as well as just sort of other things he's done outside of the machining space, I just think that Tony has a really interesting approach uh, with people. Um, and he has just a certain being an engineer and having done that most of his life as he's kind of um, risen in his career, I just thought he'd be a great perspective to bring on for our audience. They can kind of understand a little bit more about that kind of buyer and sort of the, the I guess, the empathetic approach that comes with it. But I mean, before I get into that, Tony, I wanted to just have you start by just giving, giving the audience like the 30,000 foot view of Tony Gunn, man. Just, just describe your career journey from your humble beginnings to your general manager role today. I would be happy to. And you're right. It, it was a very humble beginning. You know, my whole uh, life growing up, I really thought I was going to be a professional soccer player. Um, so that didn't happen. And uh, as that dream never really truly faded away, I'm 42 now and I still think I could probably do it, even though that's obviously not a reality. I uh, went into the machining world. And as you said, you read part of my bo uh, bio. So some of this will sound familiar, but I went into the machining world completely naive, not even an idea of this was going to be my future. I didn't, I didn't, you know, I wasn't that kid who dreamt of being an engineer. I didn't win any science fairs. I, I, you know, actually didn't do very well in school in general. Um, so I hopped into this machine shop and my first job in this machine shop was to uh, press two buttons on the right and the left because if I only had one button, then I might be that dummy that put my hand inside of the machine and stamped my hand and flattened my fingers or broke them or whatever. So a two-button press, and what that thing did was it came down and it punched a hole in a piece of precious metal. Um, this was a jewelry manufacturing plant, refining, melting it down. Um, through time, uh, I ended up growing there. I ended up learning how to do line-by-line -line programming on some older machines, some floppy disk type uh, CNCs. Um, ended up growing into uh, a bit more relevant machines that you'll see around today, some, some Omni turns uh, that went into some Imco Myers. Um, I've jumped around a couple of times from company to company, but not because I wasn't happy per se with what I was doing. It was because I had reached a level within the company that I felt like I couldn't learn uh, a broader perspective, a broader viewpoint of this whole amazing world that we're in of manufacturing and engineering, right? So I would get to a level and I, they, I was going to make 
you know, nickels and dimes for the next 20 years, slowly moving into the same thing, repetitive and monotonous. So I jumped from a precious metals company to a woodworking company to a radiator coil machining steel company. And then I had the great privilege to go to a company called uh, Air Turbine Technology or Air Turbine Tools. And that's really where the growth was just ignited like a rocket ship because through Air Turbine, being the niche product that it is, it's it, you know high-speed machining, I had the ability to travel the world to over 50 countries and work with such unique players and companies and partners around the world um, that you would not think of all the time like a Facebook or a Google. You think, okay, this is a page we go to to see pictures of our friends or a site that we you know play on um, to, to find anything to re, you know remove ourselves from a library kind of a thing, right? So everything from that to Apple and, and Tesla and SpaceX and, and just the experience became so vast that during that time of travel, I also started researching the compassion, because I've always been a compassionate person, but starting to research the compassionate side of life and, and wanting to make sure that my work life was always balanced, that there was joy in what I was doing, that I was never going to be burnt out. So in those travels, I actually ended up launching my own company. And that own company is a natural healing and tea company. So I get to work on the analytical side with all of the engineers. And then this natural healing company allows me to give back and care and be empathetic to what's going on with people in the world. And that was launched with 100% of the profit going to about 12 or 13 different charities, including like Make-A-Wish and Give Kids the World and Marine Mammal Center. So anything that was going to take care of people, animals, and the earth itself. Um, And by doing that, I forced myself in a direction of, well, somebody's got to design the website, but I don't have the money to pay anyone. Well, somebody's got to start learning how to do the hashtags and the marketing, but I don't have money to pay anyone. So I started through trial and error and an intense and uh, intense failure from time to time, um, from the grassroots of understanding how marketing worked. And I started that with the, the tea company, the natural healing company, which then adapted itself into the world of engineering, where historically we are a face-to-face trade show magazine and blog type industry that's now starting to realize due to this unique year we had in 2020 that we are a little bit behind those other industries like fashion or the movie industry where you see how great they are at that social media marketing platform. We're starting to realize in the engineering world that maybe we need to pick some things up and do a bit more of the modern style content marketing. So that is that uh, bird's eye view that you asked for, Matt, and I appreciate that question. Tony, what strikes me about uh, that story is kind of that pivot point where previously you had been involved in running the business and then you launched your own side venture, which forced you into being involved in growing the business too and building a brand. And I'm curious, what was your opinion of marketing before you did it yourself? And how did that change through the experience of learning all the nuts and bolts and seeing the results of what you were doing? That's a great question, MJ. And to be fair, uh, I'm no expert to this day. They're constantly changing our algorithms. I think they purposely mess with us just to see how clever we are. Um, and, And every day, 
I'll post something that I think is going to be great that nobody sees. And then I'll post something that I think might be, you know, beneficial, but less, less exciting that ends up taking off and and hitting 80,000 views or something like that. Um, Really? The real, the real start of this whole thing has, has truly been through, it's been forced upon me in order to, grow my own personal company in such a way that I think it's really through failure. It's really through, you know, hopping onto a Twitter. Does Twitter work? Hopping onto an Instagram. Does that work? Facebook? I don't know. Snapchat? That didn't work for me. What about, you know, a TikTok, which is, you know, something I don't play with too much. And then every single one of these, these platforms allows for a different version of how we need to market ourselves. If I if I'm on Facebook and I put that same information onto LinkedIn, then everyone on LinkedIn goes, that's some Facebook rubbish right there. You know, you need to go put your family pictures on Facebook. LinkedIn's for business. And if I post something from LinkedIn onto Instagram, um, obviously Instagram is a more limited platform that allows one minute, unless I go to the IGTV thing uh, of video or, you know, picture content and people are just scrolling and it's kind of a cool piece of awareness, but all of it all of it goes together in such a way that i think i think all of us mj and you're you're quite brilliant with your marketing as well and matt you are too and i know we we talk about this uh internally a lot um we're all learning day to day and a lot of it comes from doing things that we think will work that end up not and then trying to figure out how to make it work and i believe a lot of what makes something work in marketing is there's something that a customer wants to hear and there's information that a business wants to get across. And by finding that middle ground to figure out what the customer really wants to hear, but understanding also that our products aren't like everyone else's products. But if we only talk about that, then we're really not reaching half of the audience because that was never the question. So there's a medium ground in there that allows us all to communicate on a level that doesn't sell, sell, uh, sound like I'm selling you with every word that comes out of my mouth, but it's an authentic viewpoint, an authentic uh, strategy that allows someone to connect with us on a human level, but also answers all of their questions and allows them to see the differences between how my product might be different from another product. And no one product is universal that's going to solve every problem. And so working together as a team to do anything that allows a customer to succeed should be at the forefront of all of our products and all of our sales tactics, in my opinion. So I want to I want to lean into that a little bit because I think you stand out in terms of how empathetic an approach that you have to sales and to marketing, especially in an arena in the industrial sector, specifically machining that tends to be more about productivity and numbers and you know and output and and downtime and you know things that are very very qualitative um, but you seem to you seem to you seem very well able to to meld that with the the empathetic emotional reasons why people would buy that same solution and so i'm wondering if you can tell me how you formed that sort of approach throughout your years and i'm i'm sure I'm sure the, um, the the experience at um, at um, uh, air turbine was was very formative in that regard. Uh, another excellent question, Matt. Um, so let's be pretty clear in the sense that 
products are still going to be purchased for logical reasons, uh, especially if it's going to be you know a quarter million dollars, a, a million dollars, a five million dollar project. No matter how happy I am or how big my smile is or how great our friendship is, if I try to sell or push or promote something that is not helpful and and isn't going to create the success that's desired by that customer, then that empathetic, friendly nature is out the window. Nobody, nobody, while it's important that we understand that we're all human and there is a human nature behind this, that empathy and, and human intelligent business ethics and treating everyone with respect allows doors to be opened. And it's up to us to provide the service that they require on a logical and mathematical and technical and ROI type situation to help them find that success at the end of the day. The, the empathetic side, I, it, for me, it comes from I like everyone and I want to be a part of this industry and, to, and support people in their growth and success genuinely, authentically. And I think that's important. But again, let me reiterate, at the end of the day, and I made this post not too long ago about this, about why do people buy a product? And, you know, there were four or five options on there. The number one reason why people buy a product is quality. The number two reason was because um, of the service and support after the sale. And of the voting on there, the least important thing to the people who voted, these hundreds or thousands of people who voted, the least important thing was the salesman. And I was like, oh, man, you mean I don't mean anything to you? And, and we had a laugh about it. And, uh, and obviously, the salesperson means something. And so em- empathy and, and you know, caring about the results of the people we work with and genuinely being a friend, going out, grabbing some dinner, having a cigar if somebody's into that or a drink if somebody's into that. You do that because it's important that we spend time with one another. And there is that old, you know, saying, you know, uh, so much business gets accomplished on a golf course. It's the same concept as that, right? Is if you're spending quality time with people and you genuinely enjoy them, then that's going to open the door. But people at the end of the day want to have success and that's what's going to make them make that purchase. I think that's a, uh, it's very interesting from the, that result of your, your, your poll and now first off how aggravated you got about it. I thought that was hilarious, but um, <laughs> But it's but it's it's to me it's interesting because I think for a lot of you know presidents or CEOs of industrial companies they would have thought that the salesman is the most important part um, of that because they you know they they're the ones who build the relationship and drive the sale but the salesman's really more of a conduit I guess towards what the customer's really looking for which is a relationship with the company and you can build that in any number of ways um, even without a direct salesman you can build it through your customer service you can build it through your brand you can build it through your marketing you can build it through the, just even the product frankly itself and just how user friendly it is and kind of the community that you're able to create around it so i, I think that's uh, i think your your survey result in all in all is 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 telling in that regard so i, I want to to ask given that just a basic pivot on that on that um Whole question, like I just want to ask you, just some as someone who's been an engineer, you've worked like in the engineering space, you've bought things as an engineer, and you kind of have this uh, left uh, left brain, right brain understanding of this. What are the emotional factors at play in your experience for for people for engineers buying engineer products? Mm, it's a really good question, and I don't know that I have a solid answer for that. Really, um, 
you know, I, I heard this joke once and it's, you can, you guys can determine if it's a good joke or a bad joke. I think it's somewhat good, but they, they say the, the joke is how can you tell the difference between a standard engineer, which is typically an introvert and an outgoing engineer? And the answer is that an outgoing engineer will look at your feet instead of their own feet when they're talking to you. So we're dealing with, in most cases, and introverts are extremely incredible people that are full of thought. And, you know, sometimes in the interviews we do, we get, we, we have to pull a little harder to get information out of an engineer just because it's such an, an analytical um left-sided, left-brain-sided conversation that, I, honestly, Matt, I'm not sure that I have a complete answer for you. And at the end of the day, my path of being empathetic or compassionate or understanding or genuinely caring and being a friend with someone may not even fully work in, in many aspects of that field because it... And I'll tell you another story real quick. And this might go a, a little bit more toward answering your question, Matt. Um, you, some of the people listening may or may not know that I consider my buddy Titan Gilroy a good friend. And we've, we've had our back and forth with each other in a comical way. Um, you know, during emo last year, he was picking on me a little bit for leaving my booth. And I, you know, went over to his booth and picked on him a little bit because it was too famous for me to go see. The line was too long. And and uh, he and I have been good friends. And the, the, our friendship started when he described to me what he was doing for the inmates of San Quentin Prison. And I met him during his third season of creating that series from removing all of that CNC machinery, putting in all that brand new Haas machinery and educating someone who maybe had life in prison or a decade in prison or whatever it might be, educating them on a platform that when they got out, they would be more valuable to the economy than just a push button operator. Maybe there was hope that they would, you know, stay out of prison because they say that 60% that get out are going to go right back in the statistical thing that goes along with that. So Titan and I connected, in my opinion, on the level that came from compassion, even though we both come from very much from an engineering background. And the first time I met him, I walked in as a sales guy for air turbine and we started talking for about 10 minutes and he looks at me and he goes, you're not a sales guy, are you? You're, you actually know what you're talking about a little bit when it comes to this programming and engineering stuff. So I think there is an honest connection in, in the numbers side of things, but also combining those numbers with like caring, caring about the people that are around us as well. So if... If those two things can come together, but we can, we can showcase that it's not fluff, then that becomes a bit more respect, and then the compassion can be connected as well. Yeah, I think that's really true. I, uh, my mind goes immediately to this framework from a company that I love. I use a lot of their tools. It's called Strategizer, which is the word strategy with Z-E-R at the end. That's how you spell it. And they have this tool called the value proposition canvas. And one of the elements of this canvas is understanding the customer jobs to be done before you create your messaging and you try to talk about the value that your product brings. And when people fill this out, especially for engineering companies, they're very focused on the functional jobs. What does my customer have? do at their job, which I think makes sense. I think 
70 or 80 percent of the jobs to be done for an engineering type role or a maintenance manager or an ops manager are functional jobs. But it's important not to forget the social jobs and the emotional jobs that those customers have. And I think it requires you as a marketer or anyone involved in strategy or selling to think at a deeper level, right? For example, uh, a social job, if you're a consultant, might be to impress your clients. So your functional job is to deliver a training or deliver a service, but you also have to impress your clients. So think about, I would challenge people listening to this podcast to think about what are the social and emotional jobs of your customer in addition to just those functional things they have to get done? So, Tony, what are some of the issues or challenges or traps that marketers and other people that are involved in strategy and selling make when they're trying to position a product for an industrial audience? It's a good question, MJ. And I think one of the biggest traps that we fall into is that we're all evangelists for our product. And typically, we know our products very well. But we forget that the whole world doesn't understand our products as well as we do. And so because we are evangelical in the way we speak about it, we often don't truly connect with what the the solution might be as an overall solution instead of just what the solution could be because we need to sell our product. And sales are pushed pretty heavily um, with quotas and agendas, and uh, nobody wants to you know, sell less than they did the year before, but the industry doesn't necessarily work like that. The economy doesn't necessarily work like that. And sometimes we, as salespeople, get backed into a corner where there's so much pressure that we stop caring about what the customer really needs and start caring too much about needing to sell the product. So we need to connect as marketers. We need to connect the engineer brain of someone who has all these numbers to a customer who maybe doesn't 100% understand the product to the sales side of things where we pick and choose the parts that we think we can convince are the most convincing and convey that information to the best of our ability to allow it to be understood. Um, I'm not honestly sure if that answers your question, MJ, because that one to me is a difficult one. And I honestly think that you and Matt, knowing you guys and, and seeing your posts online, might even be able to answer that question better than I. I don't know. I think that was a pretty good answer. What do you think, MJ? I think it's a universal answer. I think uh, regardless of if you're an industrial or any other industry, people are going to struggle with the fact that internally you've got pressure to hit your quota and sell, sell, sell. But externally, do the customer needs align with your growth plans and and I think that's why when you're creating a growth strategy, you need to do it backwards from what the market is telling you and not, okay, we're going to grow 8% next year. So that means we're going to push out all these sales onto the customer. So I think it's a really good reminder. All right, Tony, I want to, I want to wrap you up on this last question because I thought this was an interesting thing that you, the way you described yourself. And I want to, I want to get like an example of this for our audience. So you fashion yourself, as an outside the box thinker. And I think that comes from 
just how eclectic your background has been and the variety of industries you've worked in, um, as well as just the fact that you've been exposed to a lot of different markets in your career. So especially for someone who's still relatively early in their career at 42, tell me about some of the outside the box ways you've um, been able to reach your target audience um, in, in, any, in any example of your life, whether that's an air turbine or elsewhere, and, and gotten them to respond. Wow, you guys have great questions. I appreciate them. They make me they make me think uh, very deeply about a good solid answer to share with everyone. Thinking outside the box in our industry isn't always accepted because we're so used to numbers and figures and data and computer and statistics and and one of the more frustrating things I b- I believe historically with marketing is that we've never been able to. Uh, get any information back about, well, I just spent $10,000 on a magazine ad. What did I get? What was my return on that? I don't know how many people flipped to my page. I don't know unless somebody calls and tells me, hey, by the way, um, I saw your ad in a magazine. So the new concept of social media, um, the being able to hashtag things, being able to tag partners and companies, the fact that we can communicate in the comment section saying, you know, this is a great post and I bought a machine thanks to your video showcase. So we're learning more. We can literally literally click on a post now that allows us to sh- show who has looked at it, what areas of the world have looked the most, what type of titles of people have been researching this post the most. So we're gaining data that wasn't able to be gained before. So while that's not the answer to thinking outside of the box, it is an answer toward understanding how we can do better marketing. When it comes to thinking outside of the box, I think, I believe, I have a hope that a lot of it comes from the global travel that I've been able to to participate in. The, The over 50 countries around the world going from the U.S. to parts and places in Latin America to all over Europe to you know Asia and India and and then attending easily over 50 60 70 trade shows in different countries around the world has allowed me to um kind of absorb and adapt so many different theories and concepts of okay well they do this in Indonesia for these reasons and they do this in Europe for these reasons. And I'll give you a small example, if you don't mind. Um, I've worked with, with Haas for a long time. And, and I've worked with you know, a lot of other machine companies that I absolutely love, like the Dusans, the Hermales, the Grobes, um, the, the whole team of methods with RoboDrill. But this one story comes from Haas. And I've worked with Haas around the world, um, easily 30 or 40 different countries, right? And... I know how Haas markets their machines in the U.S. I know that they are reliable. I know that they they do what they're meant to do, right? They're budget friendly and they have great customer service at the end of the day. If I took that same marketing strategy and applied it to uh, working with my friends in Malaysia, who I'm also very close with, the guys over there, their marketing strategy is a bit different because their competition is a bit different. Here in the U.S., the Haas's compete with uh, the quality of the Japanese and the German machines. And while they also exist in a place like Malaysia, the, the majority of machines sold there are going to be something more that come from 
the Taiwanese side of things or the Chinese side of things, and no disrespect to those places because they make great machines, they typically aren't known for their rigidity and horsepower. And so Haas in Malaysia markets more toward, I can cut steel, whereas this Taiwanese machine might bog down. So their marketing strategy is twofold in two different places. And if I was to go on and on with this story, and I go on and on with different machines, different tooling companies, those strategies change in every location around the world based on how much an employee is played, uh, paid versus what automation is doing versus the fact that about the majority of people run a machine at 40% of its capability. And if we're going to start reshoring here in the U.S. and we double it to 80%, now we're starting to create budget-friendly situations that allow us to complete globally on a financial scale. So there's just all of this engineering combined with other people's thoughts combined with a whole lot of hope. And at the end of the day, I think bringing that together allows us all to find some common ground to go, okay, that piece works for me. That piece doesn't, that piece does. And then we pick and choose the pieces that work the best and apply them to our lives. Awesome. Well, uh, (laughs) Tony, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, before we wrap up, can you just tell us a little bit about what you're doing right now and how people can get in touch with you if they want to work with you or your company? Uh, sure thing, MJ. So MTD CNC is a, uh, English based company or UK based company, and they've been around for well over a decade now, um, and have a huge, uh, part of the industrial uh, manufacturing engineering market of the UK that, that work with who they are and who they are is um, a PR and marketing connection where just about everyone that works with MTD CNC comes from an engineering or some sort of technical background. So there's that middle ground of a standard marketer who doesn't understand engineering or an engineer who doesn't want to talk out loud a whole lot or be, be in front of a camera. It's the combination of um, intelligent engineers that also don't mind being in front of the camera. So we ask the right questions, create the right case studies, create the, the correct style of testimonials. We do podcasts, we do print and digital uh, magazines, we do email blasts. It's this whole combination of allowing information to be spread on any platform from social media to a magazine and we go around the world now um, from customer to customer, from partner to partner, making sure that awareness is generated, that inspiration is generated, that the technical aspects of what they're trying to convey to the general public is generated. And that's the marketing plan of MTD CNC and MTD CNC Global. Tony Gunn, thank you very much. That was another episode of the Industrial Marketing Show. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please leave us a rating and a written review. We would love to hear from you. And if you have questions, comments, or you want to be a guest on the show, you can find Matt and I on LinkedIn. And with that, I am MJ. And I'm Matt. Thank you so much for listening to the show and have a great rest of your day.